Welcome to Mexico Matters, the CSIS podcast about how events occurring in Mexico can impact and more importantly, matter in the United States. I am Mariana Campero, non-resident senior associate of the Americas program at CSIS and the former CEO of the Mexican Council on Foreign Relations, COMEXI. Russia is facing condemnation from most of the world and stiff sanctions from the United States and Europe. Yet, the Mexican president, Andrés Manuel López Obrador, has said that he will not impose any economic sanctions and has failed to personally condemn the Russian invasion against Ukraine. To help us understand why President Putin has found certain support in Mexico, Brazil, and other Latin American countries, that it is my pleasure to welcome former Mexican Foreign Secretary, Jorge Castañeda. Dr. Castañeda served in that position during the administration of President Fox and began his career many years earlier as a member of the Mexican Communist Party. He has also published more than a dozen books, including a biography of the Che Guevara, and is a regular contributor to the Newsweek magazine, to the New York Times, to the LA Times, among others. Thank you very much, Jorge. As someone who is very knowledgeable about Latin American right and left, but as someone who is also at the center of the political spectrum, what is the substance behind Mexico's position vis-a-vis -vis Russia and Ukraine? There seems to be a contradiction, as on the one hand, we have President López Obrador that says that wants to maintain a good relationship with President Putin, And he said that we will continue to import fertilizers from Russia. And on the other side, we see Mexican diplomats who have condemned Russia. And we signed the United Nations non-binding resolution. Just to put this in context, there have also been demonstrations in favor of Ukraine on the streets of Mexico City. What is your take? There's several explanations, I think, for this, Mariana. The first is that There's a double discourse issue here. Uh, Lopez Obrador is speaking to his domestic audience. His foreign ministry and his diplomats are speaking to a foreign audience. And they think, in a rather provincial way, which is what they are, that they can get away with this double speak, saying one thing domestically and another abroad, and that no one will notice that there's a difference. Uh, that's, I think, the first main explanation. Uh, the second one is that clearly there was a huge fight within the government from the very first days, even a couple of days before the invasion, as to what to do, this particularly at the Security Council. And the uh, foreign ministry and the ambassador at the UN won that battle in the sense that they were able to convince López Obrador to vote for the resolution at the Security Council condemning the invasion by Russia of Ukraine. But they didn't change his mind on the substance. They didn't change his heart. His heart and the substance of his position is, I wouldn't say with Putin, but it's against Ukraine. Uh, he, I don't think he has any great sympathy for Putin, except though, and this is very important, he received a great deal of Russian Sputnik vaccinations against COVID. 
And a lot of them were delivered before others got them, and a lot of them were delivered for free. And so he has a certain amount of gratitude with regard to Putin because of the vaccination, the vaccines. Uh, Secondly, on this question, it's not that he likes Putin, he just doesn't like Ukraine, and he doesn't like Ukraine because Ukraine is allied with the United States, and he doesn't like the United States. The fact that he's been very pragmatic with the United States, both with Trump and with Biden, and has basically caved into everything the Americans ask him to do, doesn't mean that there's any sympathy there, that there's any affinity there. He doesn't like them, and so he doesn't like friends of the United States like Ukraine, and so he likes the United States enemies. So the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So that's the second explanation, which I think is an important one. And the third one is that public opinion within his coalition in Mexico, not public opinion in general terms, but within the Morena electorate and cadres and militants, etc., is much more sympathetic to Putin than it is to Ukraine. They tend to agree with Putin that this was provoked by NATO expansion, that this was provoked by placing offensive weapons in Ukraine and by not letting the Russian population in Ukraine be part of Russia. And so that he, uh, the right side of history is with the Russians, not with the Ukrainians. And so you put all of this together and you end up with this mess, basically, that we have today. One could argue that his efforts to differentiate between internal and external audiences have not fully succeeded. In fact, soon after AMLO made this statement, Secretary Blinken revealed in a tweet that he had had a conversation with his Mexican counterpart in which he reiterated the importance of Mexico being a partner. Another example was Bob Menendez, the chairman of the U.S. Senate Foreign Relations Committee, who described AMLO's position not only as wrong, but he also said that, in fact, he was not at all surprised about AMLO having taken this position. Were you surprised? Jorge, how much of this do you think is motivated by internal political reasons versus ideology? Regarding the domestic political reasons, clearly Morena Party's Uh, leadership and sympathies and congressmen and senators, governors have much more sympathy for Putin than they do for Ukraine, largely because of their anti-Americanism. As I said, they're all pragmatic. They all understand the need to get along with the United States, but that's not where their heart lies. And so whenever their real feelings emerge, that's what they are. And it's obvious that López Obrador is paying much more attention right now to the feelings of his base, to the uh, sympathies of his base, than to the rest of the countries or even to what is convenient for him. Now, you say that he can't get away with it. Well, he can and he can't. Uh, Senator Menendez is, of course, a very influential voice in Washington. But, for example, he was unable or unwilling to call uh, for a hearing at Western Hemisphere or at the Foreign Relations Committee as a whole to question Anthony Blinken or someone else as to why the United States has been unable to convince López Obrador to impose sanctions on on Russia. He wasn't able to do that or he wasn't willing to do it. Blinken had a late night phone call with Foreign Minister Ebrard. They said they talked about Ukraine, but Blinken was unwilling to state publicly whether he had sort of called out 
Mexico for not imposing sanctions or had tried to convince Mexico to impose sanctions or whether the issue of sanctions had come up. Lopez Obrador continues to call Biden's bluff, basically saying, I dare you to say anything publicly that you disagree with me upon, because you know if you do that, I'll unleash the flow of Hondurans again. Again, it's not that it has stopped at all. It hasn't stopped. It's as big as ever, but it could be worse. And that's a little bit where Lopez Obrador stands. And Biden continues to fundamentally accept this, although now and then someone will raise an issue about Mexico on energy, on journalists being assassinated, on threats to Mexican civil society. But by and large, Lopez Obrador has Biden's number on this. Russia has had strong ties with countries in Latin America, for example, Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua. But its ties with Mexico have been more limited, especially as North American economies became deeply intertwined since NAFTA. Notwithstanding, there's still, as you say, some people in Mexico, particularly AMLO's base, whose heart is closer to Putin than to the U.S. In fact, López Obrador and President Putin, by the way, were among the last presidents in the world to congratulate President Biden for his presidential victory. And he has also publicly accused the Biden administration of interfering in Mexico's internal affairs, and he has violated USMCA. In sharp contrast, he rolled out the red carpet when welcoming the Cuban president as a guest of honor to Mexico, while blaming the U.S. embargo on Cuba for the demonstrations in the island that occurred last summer. Jorge, how does AMLO see the United States? As I said, his heart and his base's heart is clearly elsewhere. It, there is no sympathy, no respect, no admiration for the United States. Uh, they do not like the United States, full stop. Now, he is a very pragmatic politician when he wants to be. And he understands that the, you know, there's three fronts from the very beginning that he did not want to fight on. He did not want to pick a fight with the Mexican army. He did not want to pick a fight with the United States. And he did not want to pick a fight with the Mexican business sector. This business sector has been the easiest. They basically caved from day one. They decided they didn't want to fight with him. And that's it. Recently, uh, Carlos Slim, the country's richest man, said that it was foolish, it was silly to fight with the government, that this was the government we had, and that on the contrary, the business community should work with the government and not have any ideological or political discussions or disagreements with the government. The army, he bought it off basically by giving it responsibility for building or doing an enormous amount of things which allow for a great deal of corruption and which makes the army very happy. And with the United States, he basically made a Faustian pact from the very beginning with Trump, not only with Biden, which was, I'll do your dirty work for you and not let the Central Americans and the Haitians and the Cubans and the Ecuadorians and the Venezuelans and the Africans, I won't let them in. And in exchange, you let me do whatever I want in Mexico or on foreign policy which is why he's had these relations with Cuba and which why he has this close relationship, not to Russia, but to Russia's friends. You see, he has to choose whose company would he rather be in, let's say, at the UN General Assembly vote, abstaining with China, with Cuba, with Nicaragua, with Bolivia, with all of those countries, or voting in favor of the resolution with the United States, with Canada, with the European Union, with Ukraine. 
etc. He would much rather be in that other company. He believes Mexico and himself belong there. He knows he can only go so far doing that. So he's been very friendly to the Cubans, but he won't give them any money or any oil. He's very pragmatic and he knows where his bread and butter issues are. He'll he'll be careful. He's been careful with that. He's big friends with the, uh, you know, with the Argentines and with the Bolivians and with Evo Morales and all of this stuff. But he knows how, just how far he can go and he won't go any further than that limit. So we have this inconsistency, which everyone sees, but nobody really cares about because it's part of his, you know, he's more and more acting and being perceived as, you know, the sort of crazy uncle we all have locked up in the attic or in the basement. Everyone has one of those. We all have. And, you know, you have to bring him out every now and then. And it's always a little bit embarrassing. It's always a little bit, uh, you know, what do we do with this guy? But uh, you put up with him because he is your crazy uncle. What are you going to do? He is walking in a very thin line. And as you say, Although he has been somewhat pragmatic vis-à-vis the United States, particularly because he knows he needs the jobs, the remittances, the security cooperation, among other things. Yet, he's constantly poking at the bear. Not only his use of anti-American rhetoric or anti-American position that we just talked about, but also with very specific actions. For example, you mentioned his proposed energy reform. Well, if passed, it will impact billions in U.S. investments as well as other strategic long-term issues for the United States. Why do you think there haven't been any repercussions from the U.S. administration? You spoke about this Faustian pact with immigration. Is that it? My sense has been that this Faustian pact has limits, and the limits are in the United States, and they're essentially have to do with Congress and lobbies and activists in the sense that the Congress will increasingly be pressuring the Biden administration to do something about all of this. Either it's because you have very conservative uh, senators like Ted Cruz or Marco Rubio who have their own agendas, whether it's a presidential agenda or a regional agenda or an ideological agenda, it doesn't matter. They have been pressuring Biden and they will continue to do so in a similar vein, though not entirely. There's the Menendez issue. I'm sure Senator Menendez does not look, is not happy with Lopez Obrador's stance on Cuba, stands to reason. Um, but so there's pressure from the Congress. And then there's pressure from the oil industry, from the electric power industry, from agriculture, and even within the cabinet from people who have who are cl- more closely linked to these lobbies, like the USTR representative, like the Department of Commerce secretary, Department of Labor secretary, who all have to do, deal with issues with Mexico and who uh, are not necessarily convinced of the wisdom of Biden's stance of basically accepting everything and taking a blind eye to everything Lopez Obrador does in Mexico, as long as he keeps the migrants out. Back in 2019, President Trump was heavily criticized for weaponizing tariffs, but his threat to impose up to 25% tariffs on Mexican imports was actually enough for AMLO to drastically reverse a long-held position in support of migrants, and he agreed to collaborate on the issue. Jorge, do you 
foresee by any chance this administration using the enormous leverage they have over Mexico's success in order to protect their own interests? I don't think so, because I think Biden's just not that kind of a guy. And the people who work around him in, on foreign policy in general and on Latin American and Mexican foreign policy in particular are not that kind of people. They're nicer. They're more diplomatic. They're more sympathetic to the broader, longer-term strategic interests that the U.S. has with Mexico. The problem is that, in fact, it's the strategic interests that are getting in the way of all of this. The problem I see is that López Obrador is running the country into the ground on the economic front, on the pandemic front, uh, on, as regards violence, as regards drug trafficking, as regards a bunch of things. And these are long-term strategic issues for the United States. Mexico's macroeconomic policy is a valid bilateral item on the agenda. It's not a domestic Mexican concern only. Biden has not wanted to talk, even mention, uh, macroeconomic policy. You can see it, you know, everybody and their cousin from the U.S. administration has come to Mexico or met with the Mexicans, except for Secretary Yellen, except for the economists in the White House, the chairman of the economic advisors, the Council of Economic Advisors, etc. There is very little dialogue on macroeconomic policy. What are you guys doing? Would the Americans ask, why aren't you pump priming? Why aren't you doing any counter-cyclical policies? Why aren't you using the $60 billion unconditional, practically interest-free loan you have from the IMF? Why aren't you raising your debt when you are under-indebted, not over-indebted in relation to GDP, etc.? Why aren't you doing this with money as cheap as it is in the world today? And instead of being way behind the curve on economic growth results, Mexico could be ahead of the curve. Why aren't you guys doing that? That dialogue, to the best of my knowledge, is not taking place. And that's where the strategic issue comes into place. It's a little bit like a child. There's things you can't bring up with him. And so just forget about all that stuff. Stick to migration and forget about the rest. Jorge, let us now turn to Latin America, a region that not long ago was seen with optimism. Countries were growing, poverty was falling, and millions were joining the middle classes. Fast forward to today, and we're seeing a region moving backwards, ruled by anti-U.S., anti-market, left-leaning, or populist politicians. Starting in 2018 with AMLO, but followed with Argentina, Bolivia, Peru, Chile, now maybe even Colombia and Brazil, if Lula makes a comeback in the upcoming elections. In fact, many of these Latin American presidents have failed to explicitly criticize the Russian invasion, including Bolsonaro of Brazil. And others, such as Cuba, Venezuela, or Nicaragua, have openly supported Putin. To what do you attribute these shifts? Is there a similarity among all countries? Are these changes at all related to Russia and China making inroads in the region? First of all, I, I would try to establish a series of differences between some of the left-of-center governments or parties that are either in power or are expected to take power soon. I think AMLO 
obviously Venezuela, Nicaragua, and Cuba. Argentina, Bolivia are of one type. Peru is difficult really to fathom at this stage. Nobody knows uh, what they think, what they're doing on any front practically. But in general terms, these countries are more statist, more nationalist. They, there is a slight authoritarian tilt there, uh, in some cases more than in others. They uh, sympathize with Putin for the reasons, similar reasons to the ones I mentioned for Mexico. And then you have uh, people like Boric in Chile, who has been very clear, for example, in his criticism of human, the human rights situation in Venezuela and in Nicaragua, who issued a very strong statement condemning the invasion of Ukraine from the very first moment, literally the first hour, hours after the invasion. I think Lula it will be in a similar position. I don't think Lula uh, will be like Rousseff or anybody else. He'll be like the Lula of the first term that we knew back in the early part of this century. So I think you're, there are differences there. As a matter of fact, Putin's best friend in Latin America probably is Bolsonaro, uh, Lula's arch rival and extreme right wing ruler. So I don't see this either as a result of inroads by the Russians or the Chinese. I see this more as either an ideological tilt in some of these governments or in some cases like Bolsonaro because, well, he says that Brazil needs a Russian fertilizer desperately and can't live without it. I'm not sure that's true, but I just don't know enough about it, frankly. But I can see the logic of an autocratic affinity between Bolsonaro and Putin, sort of he-man, macho, uh, mutual admiration society. But I, I wouldn't read too much into the different stances that different governments have. And besides, they're all over the place. For example, Argentina and Brazil abstained on the OAS resolution condemning the invasion. But they voted in favor of the UN General Assembly resolution. And Brazil voted in favor of the Security Council resolution condemning the invasion. So, you know, at the end of the day, uh, it's still Latin America. You know, it's still... Carnival and cumbia and rumba. I mean, don't you can't take it too seriously, okay? You, you can't expect consistency from anybody really in the region. Maybe the Chileans are a difference, but that's about it. Jorge, you just spoke about Lopez Obrador running the country into the ground, not only from an economic perspective, but also from a security and rule of law perspective. In the midst of this Ukrainian crisis, the Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, actually took the time to tweet to urge Mexico to show greater accountability in the deaths of journalists in the country. Sadly, Mexico is the deadliest country for journalism in the Western Hemisphere. Jorge, you have stated that López Obrador threatens and creates the conditions for journalists, critics, and the opposition to, to be afraid. As a prolific writer yourself, an intellectual, a critic, and an opinion leader, have you ever felt threatened? Can you educate our audience as to what Secretary Blinken was referring to? Well, in, in my personal case, no, I haven't felt threatened because for reasons that are mysterious to me, Lopez Obrador does not pick a fight with me. He doesn't threaten me. He doesn't mention me but very, very rarely. And so really, I have nothing personally to complain about. People, very good friends of mine, 
or uh, media where I sometimes participate or sometimes criticized, but my, personally, that's not the case. I have been fired from all of the most of the media where I used to write or work for on the radio, except for television. Uh, but that's a decision made by the owners. Now, whether the owners made that decision because they wanted to ingratiate themselves with Lopez Obrador or not, I don't know. That's a different story. Most people in normal countries would consider that to be censorship. In Mexico, it's considered to be perfectly normal, and it's quite acceptable for the media to fire somebody. End of story. Unless the person who is fired happens to have a, a clique of followers, in which case it becomes a personal issue. But if that's not the case, it doesn't matter in Mexico. So uh, it's a very complicated. My, my situation is sort of strange because he doesn't go after me. Now, what was Blinken referring to? He was referring, I think, to two things. One, the number of journalists in Mexico who have actually been killed, which is a very high number, as you said one of the highest in the world, and which is totally unacceptable. Now, these people have not been killed by the government. The government is not guilty of their assassination. That's not the case. The government is guilty of not protecting them. And that's true for Lopez Obrador and for Peña and for Calderón. It's not new. Mm -hmm. Calderón set up a mechanism to protect journalists along the lines of one that exists in Colombia, uh, but it has been totally ineffective. So that's, an, that's a real issue, and I think Blinken is right on that matter. And secondly, many people in Mexico believe, and I think Blinken was referring to that, though I don't know this as a fact, that by name-calling and finger-pointing journalists and intellectuals and media owners or media entities, López Obrador is, in a sense, inviting the bad guys, whoever the bad guys may be, to go after them, either to ingratiate themselves with, congratulate themselves with Lopez Obrador, or just for the hell of it. In other words, that, you know, if, if Lopez Obrador every single day uh, says that Carlos Loret de Mola is a subversive, an enemy of the people, a uh, fat cat, a servant of the United States, there's enough crazy people in Mexico to think, that, well, you know, if the president says all of that, it must be true. Let's go get this guy. Lopez Obrador will not have killed him. You can't accuse him of having him assassinated. He's not Putin in that sense. He certainly is not. On the other hand, not only is he not protecting Loret, He's inciting people to go after him. Fortunately, none of this has happened. I think that's the sort of thing that Blinken was referring to. Though, again, you know, it was a rather elliptical statement, so it's difficult to know exactly what he was referring to. All of this in the midst of a war, a competition between U.S. and China, a relocation of supply chains in order to become more resilient, a need for the U.S. to be even more competitive, Jorge, how are Mexico's actions impacting the U.S.-Mexico bilateral relationship? A bit in conclusion, Mariana, I think that, you know, the opportunities for Mexico are immense. Uh, not so much because of this uh, TMEC nonsense. If there had been no, no TMEC, uh, NAFTA was more than sufficient to give, grant the two countries or the three countries the opportunity to move forward. According to some people, TMEC makes things better or USMCA makes things better, or the USMCA makes things worse. I think that's irrelevant. The opportunities are immense because of what you say, uh, particularly the rivalry between the United States and China and the growing confrontation there, which was, is leading uh, many uh, 
American companies or foreign companies in general uh, to contemplate relocating their supply chains out of China. And one of the ideal places to do so is Mexico under normal circumstances. If you just look at the geography and you look at the treaties and you look at the economics, it all makes sense. Now, the problem, of course, is that we have an anti-business government in Mexico. The Mexican private sector can cave in as much as it wants because what it does basically is vote with its feet and takes its money out. It's increasingly investing abroad. And foreign investors who could be investing in Mexico are looking at what is happening to other investors, like, for example, KKR in the Monserra plant in, in Tuxpan, the energy storage plant, the gasoline storage plant in Tuxpan, and saying, look, we don't need this. Mexico is a good and interesting place, but there are other interesting places to relocate to. Uh, the automobile industry can say, look, you know, we'd love to produce electric cars in Mexico with clean energy. But if we can't, there's the entire south of the United States, which is where the real competition for the automobile industry in Mexico lies, not in Brazil or in Argentina. So basically, you have flat private investment and flat foreign investment. It's just keeping up with what was going on before. And that means that there is no growth. And this will be the this administration with the lowest six-year growth rate since Miguel de la Madrid in 1982-88. And, you know, that's going to soon be 40 years ago. That's a long time. That's the entire length of the so-called Mexican miracle. We've had 40 years. We've never had such low growth as this time. And it's not going to get any better between now and the end of the administration. Everybody knows that. So, yes, the opportunities are immense. But unfortunately, the kind of government we have is totally unresponsive to these opportunities and is not going to take advantage of them. And I'm not sure it's a very great, it's a great idea to continue to carp on how great the opportunities are. No, actually, they're not that great because, they, in fact, they don't exist. I read and hear people saying, well, why don't we send missions to the U.S. and to China plant by plant, factory by factory, telling them to come to Mexico? What do you mean we? Who is we? We Mexicans are not going to do that because that's the government's job and it's not going to do it. And the private sector is totally incapable of doing it. So who is going to do it? Nobody, which means the opportunity, in fact, does not exist. Yes, it is certainly a very realistic and harsh observation, Jorge. We do have an anti-business, anti-American president. In fact, his position vis-a-vis the Ukrainian invasion was well received by the Russian ambassador in Mexico, who publicly thanked AMLO for what he called Mexico's independent position. But the truth is that with his ambiguity, he's actually choosing to distance himself not only from the United States, but also from other Western democracies. Jorge, unfortunately, we have come to the end of this episode Thank you so much for this conversation, for enlightening us about Latin American anachronistic ideologies, and for your time. Again, thank you so much. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts. From Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. 
Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 